things I love about stories is that you're always going to have two components. You're going to have hardship and you're going to have rescue. That's true in, in just about any story that you will ever come in contact with is that you're going to have hardship and you are going to have rescue. These two elements play a major part in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. I love the book, and I I love the movie. I love how it it unfolds. The story goes like this. You have four siblings. You have Peter, you have Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Four siblings that they leave during the blitz of World War II, and they live with this old professor in this huge mansion. And you can imagine what children would do in in an environment like that. They would play hide-and-seek. Uh, they would get into all kinds of trouble. And, and one day they were actually playing hide-and-seek, and Lucy goes into this huge wardrobe. And she goes past all of the uh, fur coats and all this stuff, and next thing you know, she comes out, and she is outside. Now, most of us, if we ever went into our wardrobe and we ended up outside, you've got a hole in your wall, and you've got a hole in your wardrobe. But in this particular story, Lucy is in this land called Narnia. And she meets this uh, half goat, half man guy named Mr. Tumnus. And he's a really, really funny character, but uh, he is actually uh, given orders that if anyone comes into Narnia, he's supposed to take her to a white witch. And so he kind of contemplates this and knows that that is what he's supposed to do, um, but he doesn't do that. He takes uh, Lucy back to his house, and, and then he decides he's going to take her back to uh, this lamppost, which is outside of the wardrobe, and she's excited about uh, this new land. So as any child would do, they would go and get their siblings, right? If you're going to get into trouble, right, pal, you're going to get a sibling. That's what, I would, that's what I do, and that's what my kids do. But, so Lucy gets her brother Edmund, who is uh, the third uh, youngest, uh, and so Edmund goes with her back to Narnia, and he meets this white witch, and she offers him Turkish delight. Now, if you're like me, sweets, that's kind of my thing. I mean, I would be enticed to do just about anything, legal, legally speaking, for a good sweet. And that's what happens with Edmund. Edmund kind of falls prey uh, to what's going on, and uh, And so the white witch says, I will give you more of this Turkish delight if you will go back and bring your siblings to me. So Edmund kind of thinks about it, and he is very swayed, easily swayed to to be manipulated. But he ends up not doing that, and he creates uh, treason against the white witch. And the white witch, what she has done to Narnia this whole time is they are in a perpetual winter. A perpetual winter. Um, anybody in here would enjoy winter year-round besides my wife? That's not true. Um, but, okay, so they have a, a perpetual winter going on in Narnia. It's very, very cold. And so all, all the siblings come back, and the witch, when she realizes that Edmund has uh, done something wrong, that he did not bring them to her like he said he would do, Um, She basically says, you're going to have to die. You deserve death for your treason. And so, guess who steps in? The great Aslan, this ferocious uh, lion who is actually the ruler over Narnia. And Aslan says that he will take the place of Edmund. 
and die. And so uh, the lion is placed on this huge um, surface and is killed. But guess what? He comes back to life. And Aslan and the siblings, uh, Edmund and Lucy and Peter and, Su- and, uh, and Susan, they all defeat all the bad in Narnia and they now have peace and hope again. It's a great story and they go through a lot of different um, turmoil to get to where they are. But every good story has hardship, which we just saw in that story. But every good story also has a rescuer. Aslan is that picture in this story. But the greatest story of all time is found in God's holy Word. Amen? So the story does not end. That's the good thing about God's story is creation until now, until forever. God's story is ever, ever growing. It is the greatest story of all time. So last week uh, we looked at creation. We looked at God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind and the birds and the bees. All of the things of the world he created And he says that it was good. Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of God's creation. And so because Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of God's creation, here's the the reason why. We are the only created being that is created in God's image. And that makes us very, very, very special. Nothing else in creation is created in God's image, but we are. Humans are created in God's image. Adam and Eve were then placed into uh, a garden, and everything was good. I want you to listen to Genesis chapter 2 um, in the last part of the chapter. I want you to see how good Adam and Eve had it. Beginning with verse thir- uh, 23, And the man said, The one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the the man and the wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, can you imagine what it was was like for them to be uh, naked and unashamed? Had no idea that they were naked at this point, right? So they were completely unashamed, but something amazingly terrible happened and we see that in chapter chapter three now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the lord god had made and he said to the woman did god really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden the woman said to the serpent you may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden god said You must not eat it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of it, of its fruit, and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. 
The first aspect that we discover here in the fall is disobedience. Disobedience. Adam and Eve were far from being equal to God, yet he lovingly placed them in charge of all he had created in Eden. God gave them the freedom and to make decisions and govern the earth with one rule. Don't eat from a specific tree. One day, God's enemy, a fallen angel named Satan, wanted to overthrow God, so he took the form of a serpent and lied to Adam and Eve. He deceived them into thinking God was not good and did not have their best interest in mind. As a result, they knowingly disobeyed God. In rebellion, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, deciding that they, not God, would determine right and wrong. So there's no doubt here in, in God's word that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Right? It's pretty clear that God said, don't do this, and they did it anyway. And it, for me, as a dad, there's so many times when I'll tell my kids, don't do something. And Lila uh, especially will do this. Lila, don't touch that tree. She'll come really, really close to it, and she's watching to see if you're looking, and she may just barely touch it. As a parent, that drives me crazy, right? You tell your kids not to do something, and they do it anyway, right? And, and so disobedience is a part of all of us. It's a part of humanity, Right? We're naturally disobedient people. Right? God tells us in his word not to do these things, and yet we do it anyway. That is called sin. Right? So God tells us not to do these things, and yet we do it anyway. So why would Adam and Eve disobey God? Well, the first uh, point that we have here is that it was initiated by temptation. Temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. So it's good to pass an exam, but it's not good to pass it by cheating. Make sure I have any students in here. You know that? It's good to pass an exam, but it's not good to do it by cheating. It's also good to pay your bills. But it's not good to pay your bills by stealing money. Right? That will never fly with me. Well, Nick, I paid all my bills this month. Well, how'd you get it? Well, I robbed a bank. That is not good. Right? That's not good. Um, so temptation is doing a, uh, to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. In essence, Satan said this to Eve. I can give you something that you need and something that you want. You can have it now and enjoy it. And best of all, there won't be any painful consequences. What an opportunity. Adam and Eve's disobedience was initiated by the temptation of the serpent. He offered something very appealing, and what an op offer it was. When we, think about, when we think about sin, why don't you think about this for a minute? Most sin that we fall into is attractive, right? Most sin that we fall prey to is attractive. Here's an example, and this is me being completely transparent with you uh, this morning. There was a time in my life when the taste of alcohol was very appealing. It was appealing to me to partake in that daily, daily. I liked it. It was good. Right? Some of you may be thinking, well, I didn't know that about Nick. Well, that's part of my past. Sin is always attractive. Always attractive. And so, 
what we see here in Scripture is that this was very attractive for Adam and Eve to see this fruit, and it looks good, right? The fruit looks good, and so they're tempted, they fall into it, and they are initiated by that temptation. Secondly, a part of disobedience, it was furthered along by neglect. The serpent questioned God's word concerning the tree. He asked this, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Every time I read this part of scripture, I, I kind of have this, this is my version of, of what the serpent was probably like. Did God really say that? You get what I'm saying? Like he was, eh, did he really say that? Did he mean that? I don't think he really meant that. And so he is crafty. Satan is so crafty. And he asked that question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So his purpose was to bring doubt into Adam and Eve's minds concerning the truthfulness of God's word and the goodness of his character. That's another major point of this is that they are also, also bringing into the goodness and the character of God. And that is never okay, church. We should never bring in and question the goodness of God because God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Right? I can't, I can't say that enough. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. So they're bringing into not only the truthfulness of God's word, but the goodness of his character. So Eve's response uh, by reciting what God had said to her but she added something. Her replies show that she was following Satan's example and altering the very word of God. By looking at what the Lord had commanded Adam in chapter 2, we see that Eve omitted the words surely and freely and instead added the phrase, neither shall you touch it. Further, she said, lest you die, which is a possibility. Lest you die, which is a possibility, instead of you shall surely die, which is an actuality. Something that I notice in our, our culture today, uh, in the, the church culture, is that we are constantly debating about the validity of God's word. I see this all the time in, in, in the news, that people are trying to change God's word. They're trying to make God's word fit their lifestyle. They're trying to make God's word... Um, well, we don't want to offend anybody, so we will change that from a, a male uh, noun. We'll just make it neutral, where it could be any, anything, right? People will change God's word, God's word to suit their own uh, selfishness, and they will change God's word to make them so, themselves feel better about themselves, right? It's called justification. Justification. So Eve is very manipulative as well. And so she says, well, I mean, if we, if, if we touch it, we might die. But what did God say? If you eat it, you will die. God's word is the foundation of our faith. And because it is the foundation of our faith, we cannot bring it into question about whether he really said that or not. So if God says it is, it is wrong for a man to be with a man, it's wrong. If God says that a woman is not supposed to be with a woman, she's not supposed to be with a woman. If God says that we are not to look upon someone else with lust in our hearts, that's wrong. Right? The, the ten, ten Commandments are not optional. 
They're not optional. And so we should never change God's word to fit our own selfishness and our own ambition. So by neglecting God's word, Eve was an easy prey for Satan's temptation. And so we look even in when Jesus was tempted. When Jesus was tempted, he noticed that Satan also tried to manipulate God's word, didn't he? And so Jesus said, but God said, but God, but God. And Satan had no defense. No defense. The third clue that we have uh, in regard to disobedience is it was rooted in pride. Eve sinned because she was attracted to the fruit of the forbidden tree. She was walking by sight and not by faith in God's word. In Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 6, it parallels the teachings of 1 John 2, 16. Good for food, desires of the flesh, delight to the eyes. It's what I said a while ago about that sin is always attractive, right? Sin is always, always attractive. And so the root of sin is pride. We know better than God. We know better than God. That's basically what we are saying when we sin. We know better than God. What she saw stroked a cord of pride within her heart. There are three things that motivate people of today. And when God's people start thinking like the world, they start living like the world. Let me say that one more time. When God's people start thinking like the world, they start living like the world. But you may say, well, Nick... I mean, temptation, I mean, that's got to be bad, right? Well, let's look at Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Not beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let me give you a secret right now. The way to avoid temptation is to know God's word. Jesus did that exact same thing when he was tempted, right? He used God's word as a way to combat Satan. And so anytime that you are in temptation, there is always a way out. Temptation is not a sin. Given into temptation, that's where we find ourselves in sin. And secondly, uh, this morning, is the consequence. Sin always has consequences. Every decision that we make, there are consequences. The consequences for Adam and Eve's actions were devastating. Very much like a virus, sin entered into all of creation and into the hearts of Adam and Eve. Sin, suffering, and pain were passed down from generation to generation. To generation, to generation, to you and to me. Don't ever miss that. People of old are the only people that sin. We have that fallen nature within us, right? All of creation was distorted from its original design. We have all read or heard the stories of war, poverty, disease, greed, and scandals that plague our world today. You just turn on the the TV and what do we see? Someone else is killed. Someone else is murdered. Someone else has had an affair. Someone else is in the middle of a financial uh, scandal or something. Our our, Our world is filled with disaster. It's everywhere we look. But here we see the immediate consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. The first in Genesis 3, 
uh, verse 7. If you'll turn there, let's look at this. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So the first aspect of, um, of the consequence is that there is shame involved. There's shame involved. Um, when, I, when I was growing up, we played a lot of sports and did a lot of uh, different things. But my dad was actually in seminary at the time in the, in the, the early 80s. And uh, I went to daycare. And uh, we were at the daycare at, at Southwest, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And, uh, and I can remember playing all day long. And, and they gave us ice cream, which that's a great thing to do if you're babysitting kids. Give them ice cream, send them home. Um, here, let's sugar them up, send them home. Um, but that's what they did. And I remember being in the car after I had the ice cream and my dad was driving. He said, well, did, did y'all have any ice cream or anything in, uh, in, at daycare today? And, and my response, um, well, no. Um, I, I mean, I, I probably was four maybe. And I just said, no, no, sir. We, we didn't have any ice cream. Okay, well, let's go to Dairy Queen and have some ice cream. So I, I double dipped. Literally, I had a little bit more ice cream, but I remember feeling that way, and this, this is so, so pathetic of me, but it was many, many years later. I'm, I'm talking maybe 10 years ago, I confessed it to my mom and dad. <laughs> never, never in my life thought it would be appropriate to share that I had uh, probably three or four scoops of ice cream, but I literally had shame about that for years. Shame. I mean, I felt terrible about it. Um, most of you think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's ice cream. Um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is I lied, and I knew I lied, and I messed up. But there was shame there. Um, the emotional health of Adam and Eve in verse 7 is starkly different from what it was in 225. Earlier we said that they were naked and they were unashamed. They messed up, and what do we have enter into their lives? Shame. This seems to be true for the first man and woman, and it's also true about us today. Immediately after eating the, from the tree, their eyes were opened, and they saw their nakedness. They had no covering. Their conscience, their God-given uh, inner judge, was sounding off. They experienced shame. Sin always produces shame and guilt. In Genesis chapter 3 and 8, it says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking, uh, Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? The second thing that we notice here is that there's separation. Sin always brings about separation. And, and that is, to me, um, that is the hardest part of knowing that I have friends and loved ones that are out of relationship with Jesus and they're destined for hell. It's not the fire that hurts my heart. It's knowing that they're going to be separated from God for eternity. That separation. Sin separates us from a holy God. God cannot be in communion with us when we are in sin. God cannot be in communion with us when we are sin. So we see... Um, we see this separation between God and man. And so they were hiding. I mean, I, I can 
stories upon stories I can tell you about my children. When they mess up, they hide. Especially Brooks. I love the kid, but he'll do something wrong, and he is under the table. I know where to find him. I know where to find him. Or Lila, when she got a, a crayon and decided to do wall art. Um, and then she, she hides, you know, and they'll, hide, they'll even hide what they use to disobey. So not only does my daughter hide, but she'll also hide the crayon. But we do the same thing. We may not physically hide from God, but we do try to hide from God. We try to hide our sin from God, don't we? We try to hide it from him, and yet he knows all things. And I think part of it is that uh, this, this separation that, that takes place, um, it hurts, right? It hurts us when we are separated from God because of our sin. We're like, I can't do anything to fix this. And that's the whole point. We can't do anything to fix this because we don't have the power to do that. And thirdly, we also see brokenness. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, let me read this to you. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, It was a serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and he will strike, and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree which, which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So very quickly with, with brokenness, we see that they start blaming one another. Um, when I, again, when I was a kid, that was the easiest thing for me to do when something happened. Usually I did it, but I blamed one of my brothers. It was easier, right? It was easier to blame it on my brother, whether he did it or not. But here we see immediate blame pass from the man to the woman, from the woman to the serpent. And so many people will say something like this, well, we have sinned because of, of, of the woman. No, we don't, because the man was there with her. So both are guilty of sin, right? So the blame game does not work with God. We're all account, held accountable for our, our choices and our actions. And so the idea is that sin is so dangerous. We should never play around with it. We should never listen to its enticements and its promises. Sin is a liar. It's a liar. It promises much but delivers little. It steals, kills, and destroys, leaving nothing but broken lives in its wake. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. 
is, is that sin also brings a need. Adam and Eve were broken people. They were filled with shame and fear. They were separated from God and lost in a world that now worked against them. They were in great need. Today we are broken people who too are filled with shame and fear. We are separated from God and lost in a world that is working against us. We are in great need. This story is not over. There's good news. There's good news because in the midst of our need, we find a Savior. We find a seeking Savior. Adam and Eve should have been running to God, confessing their sin and asking for forgiveness. Instead, they were hiding from God. But don't miss this right here. Notice what God was doing. God was looking for them, was going to them. Church, that is, that is like mind-blowing to me that in our sin, God is running after us. We're that one sheep that's run away and the 99 are left. We're that one sheep and yet he goes after us. He loves us. He goes to us. Though we may hide, he runs after us. Billy Sunday used to say, Sinners can't find God for the same reason that criminals can't find policemen. They aren't looking. God the Father interrupted his Sabbath rest to go find the man and woman he had made in his image. It reminds me of, of my three kids that they are, they are made in our likeness. And so I have a high responsibility that wherever we go, I want them to be protected. I want them to feel loved. They are my image bearer. We are God's image bearers. And so he's running after us. He's pursuing us. He will do anything it takes to get our attention. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to come to the world to seek and to save the lost. Next, we also see with our need that we have a suffering Savior. Verse 15 is the first prophecy of the Messiah. Jesus is the offspring of the woman. At the cross, Satan bruised Christ's heel, but through his death and resurrection, Jesus crushed Satan's head and won a complete victory over him. Jesus, as a holy son of God, died in our rightful place as sinners. Jesus died a real death. Don't make no mistake about that. Every bit of the blood that he uh, poured out for you was done in love. Jesus did not partially die. He did not partially go through uh, persecution. He was not partially beaten. He was fully, fully fully beaten, and fully, fully died. He suffered because he loves us. God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that verse. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The, the Bible doesn't say while we are getting better, Christ died for us. While we are fixing up ourselves, Christ, while we are what? Sinners, Christ died for us. For us. He is a seeking Savior, a suffering Savior, and a saving Savior. Adam and Eve's response to their sin and shame 
was to sew fig leaves together and cover their nakedness. God's response was to call them to himself in faith. After God sought out Adam and Eve, they were once again, they once again believed God. They placed their faith into him, which is seen in Adam naming his wife Eve, which means living. He believed God's promises. In response to Adam's faith, God removed their flimsy man-made garments and clothed them with acceptable garments that he provided. What a picture that is for us that I feel like when it says flimsy here. I love that word, it's flimsy. Like when we're trying to clean up ourselves, it's flimsy. It's not going to stay, right? It's, it's very much a kid tries to sew their own. I'm just going to go ahead and, and say this. A long time ago, Chloe sewed something. Um, what were they pants or something? I think they were, they were pajama pants. Okay, so she was at school, sewed those. They didn't make it. She tried really, really hard, but they didn't make it. And don't you think that we do the same thing with in our sin? A a very weak. Um, we put on these weak garments to try to cover up our sin. And God looks at it and this is not acceptable. This is not going to cover your sin. There's only one thing that can cover your sin. And that's my son, Jesus. The only thing that can cover your sin is Jesus. And so uh, because of their flimsy garments, something had to die. Something had to die. An innocent animal had to die so that the man and woman might have a new beginning and be back in fellowship with God. This is a picture of exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. Christ was that perfect garment that covered our nakedness. Arms stretched wide for the whole world to see, died, and then he rose again. That is what covers our sin. Not what we make. But what Jesus made on the cross. Today. Jesus seeks out sinners so that he might cover their sin. And shame. This is God's story. It is full of hardship but also of rescue. It is beautiful but it's bloody. It's beautiful because of our Savior who willingly laid down his life on an old rugged cross. It is bloody because of the death that was required. The Bible reminds us that, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. It also tells us why blood had to be shed. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The payment for our sin is death. Is death. We deserve death, people. And I think it's time that we take our sin seriously. Because we've been saved by a holy God and by a holy son, Jesus, who died for us. And so it should compel us to take our sin seriously, to run from it, to avoid it, to place our faith in him and to allow him to guide us and to lead us. We find it in the consequences we have talked about today. But even in our sin, God pursues us out of love. 
He desires us to be in a relationship with him. Humanly speaking, this doesn't make sense. If we're honest with ourselves, this does not make sense. Our finite brains cannot comprehend it. But it is true. Because God said it was. And I believe it. God loves you. We see in John 3.16, For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you. He is pursuing you. And he calls us to turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus and his work upon the cross. As we move closer to Easter, may we gain a deeper love for Jesus and what he has done. May we begin to see people through a different lens. May we possess a greater urgency to tell as many people as we can about what Jesus has done for them. So where are you today? Are you living in shame and guilt? Is your sin causing you to try to make flimsy garments? It's not enough. You may have been at a a guilty distance from, from God your entire life. And you don't know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. It'll change your life, right, Nate? It'll change it. You're no longer the same. You were bought with a price, which also means that you have worth. You don't think you have worth. Remember what I just said. You were bought with a price. We are made in God's image, and because of that, God wants us. God wants us. God wants us. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I thank you for for just reminding us today that we are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, Lord, we deserve death. But Lord, because of your great love, your great mercy, you made a covering for us through Jesus. No longer do we have to live in shame and guilt. No longer do we have to live in disobedience, separation from you. But if we will just confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, if there's someone here today that does not know you in a personal way, and Lord, that these words that are spoken through your word, Lord, if they're ringing true with them today, help them to step out in faith and to place their faith in your son Jesus. Lord, if there's someone here today that has Lord, they're ashamed of their sin. Lord, as we were singing earlier, that we just need to bring it to the table. There's nothing new under the sun, and there's no way that we can hide our sin from you. So we just need to bring it. We just need to bring it to you. Lord, if there's someone here today that is hurting physically, 
And Lord, they just need a touch from you. I pray healing over their body. Lord, you are the God of miracles. And Lord, just the fact that you saved me is a miracle in and of itself. I'm so much like Paul in what he said that I'm the chief among sinners. I feel that way sometimes. But help us not to live in, in fear and shame. We just lay it all at the table. Father, we love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite